Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. Tax Reform 2.0 to the OECD's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's U.S. International Tax Services Leader. You can follow me on Twitter at Exporter Tax. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, I'm excited to be joined by Chip Harder. Chip is an international tax policy advisor for PwC and from 2017 to 2020 served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of International Tax Affairs at the U.S. Department of the Treasury, leading the way for Treasury's implementation of the TCJA. Chip, congratulations on your new role with PwC and welcome to the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. Well, thank you very much, Doug. It's great to be back with PwC. Well, Chip, this has been a long time coming, getting you on the podcast, and I have a lot of questions, and we're going to try to keep this to our normal format, um, but I, I, I think this could, could end up potentially as a three or four hour one, but I will already advise our listeners that that, that won't be the case, I promise. But I, I do hope this is the first of a number of conversations that we can have here on the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. Sounds like a plan. All right. So... Before we get going on guilty and minimum tax, which is really going to be the focus of today's podcast, um, you were involved with the issuance of literally thousands of pages of proposed temporary and final regulations that we have talked about ad nauseum here on the podcast. Before we get going into the specifics, how high up do these types of decisions, some of the key policy and technical decisions that you made, how high up do these types of decisions go? And really, how involved was Treasury Secretary Mnuchin in, in the process? Well, you know, it, it's quite a process, uh, you know, getting these regs drafted. They're put together by drafting teams made up of you know, staff lawyers uh, from the IRS and uh, uh, International Tax Council's office, uh, the process is, is supervised by the International Tax Council and yeah, Doug Palms did an amazing job. I was basically the, the highest um, person in the pecking order with respect to uh, international taxation. And um, so I would, yeah, review them all, you know, very carefully and was involved in all the meetings to make the policy decisions around what would go in them. Uh, then above me, um, yeah, Dave Cotter, the, the assistant secretary, and then, yeah, Secretary Mnuchin would be involved. Uh, secretary Mnuchin, you know, his reputation for being a detailed-oriented uh, boss is, is well-deserved through a lot of the tax implementation process, we were briefing him you know, twice a week uh, around uh, just you know, where we were in the regs and uh, you know, reporting on our progress. So um, he got uh, very involved, you know, particularly with respect to the uh, regulations that were getting a fair amount of political attention, including the ones around guilty implementation and the uh, allocation of expenses to the guilty basket. I mean, before he was done, he understood, you know, the arithmetic and uh, the mechanics of uh, allocating 
domestic expenses to the uh, different foreign tax credit limitation baskets and, and why everyone cared so much. I, I just find that absolutely fascinating, Chip, that uh, the, the Treasury Secretary uh, understands uh, interest expense apportionment to guilty, or at least the collateral implications mm -hmm. of that. And uh, mm -hmm. I, I just find that very fascinating. So let's go back to that fateful time in late 2017. And I want to really talk about guilty and spending some time about minimum taxes uh, really like to understand kind of how we got to to where we are, and then want to get your perspective on a couple of the legislative proposals that we've seen from the administration and Senate Finance, and then also get some of the context and your thoughts with respect to BEPS 2.0 and what we're expecting from the OECD later this summer in 2021. So. But let, let's start at the, at the very beginning when guilty, I remember when we first saw the acronym kind of scratching our head and didn't really seem like uh, um, that global or that intangible or that low tax. It was quite an acronym, but maybe if you can take us back to those fateful days of kind of just the, the formation of, of, of guilty and um, you know how did that process work and then ultimately want to get to the you know is this really a, a minimum tax but maybe just if you could set the table for you know when when you had just really kind of shown up at, at or relatively new at Treasury when the legislative process really began well it, it did all move pretty quickly again they were having to pass the TCJ through reconciliation procedures, and so it, it all got condensed into you know, something like an eight-week process. So it went by pretty fast. And during that process, there was a lot of ambiguity about just how guilty would work. Was the guilty going to be just another foreign tax credit limitation basket with a haircut and no carry forward? I mean, specifically, are expenses of the U.S. group allocable against the guilty basket with the result that the benefit of those allocable deductions can be lost to a taxpayer with excess credits in the guilty basket? Or was guilty meant to be a true minimum tax regime such that there would be no marginal tax uh, for an, uh, no marginal U.S. tax on a enterprise if it paid at least a 13 and an eighth percent average foreign tax rate and leaving the, the business on essentially a territorial basis. Um, when we first read the statutory language in the Senate bill uh, over at Treasury, we basically submitted comments saying we're quite confused. You know, you keep describing this as a minimum tax, as a backstop of a territorial system. But, you know, just looking at how you drafted it, it looks like, you know, just another foreign tax credit limitation basket um, with you know, certain further limitations like no carry forward and the 20% uh, haircut. And so we, we you know, commented on this to you know, the finance committee staff. We actually sent them over, you know, draft language saying, if you want a true minimum tax, you know, put in this special foreign tax credit limitation for guilty that would basically equal the gross guilty uh, inclusion times 
the tax rate, but none of this ended up getting clarified during the legislative process. As you probably recall, the, the committee reports seemed to finesse the issue. There was lots of general language about how yeah, Congress didn't expect that a uh, yeah, multinational paying at least a 13 and an eighth percent average tax rate abroad would be subject to residual taxation under the guilty. But, you know, nothing was definitive uh, in, in the committee reports. Um, the revenue estimates you know, we're coming out of a black box, but, you know, it appeared that you know, the models they were using allocated expenses against the guilty, uh, though it wasn't clear that that was based on a, a conscious decision to us you know, sitting over in Treasury. And, um, you know, eventually the Blue Book did come out saying that yeah, expenses are allocated against the guilty basket, but that was, you know, long after we had to go through some decision making at Treasury. So, you know, it, uh, you know, we, you know, when it, the ball was passed to us, we, uh, we had some tough decisions to make. I remember Chip kind of going through, parsing through that that language, and we we did a a little. I remember just doing a we did a little model just, uh, and uh, you know I think I naively remember based on uh, the legislative language thought that it was a minimum tax. There was that one line right in the um, and I can't remember it's the oh. Senate report. The Senate report, yeah, and. Um, and, and kind of naively thought that. And then obviously after kind of walking through even the most basic example, it's just like, well, wait a minute, you could have a company that's paying a blended rate overseas at 30% and, you know, with expense apportionment, specifically interest expense apportionment, holy cow, this company could still pay a, a significant amount of, of U.S. tax. And I remember that light bulb going on. And, and I know that there were lots of comments from, from corporations and there was even a couple articles like in the Wall Street Journal um, highlighting specific taxpayers and some of their issues. Um, so, so how did you guys react to that? Once you kind of accepted that, all right, like expense apportionment is going to happen, guilty is not really going to be, a, it's not a minimum tax because of the way the foreign tax credit limitation in the basket works. That in other words, companies that pay a blended rate at or above 13.125 could still pay US tax on their guilty because of expense apportionment. So, so Chip, once we, we concluded that this wasn't a minimum tax and expenses were going to have to be a portion, how did you react to that? And what were some of the key policy decisions and things that you considered to try to minimize some of the, the blowback or adverse consequences as a result of our foreign tax credit limitation structure? Well, yeah, given all the confusion in the legislative process, the first decision we had to make was whether there was any basis for us uh, writing, implementing regulations that called off uh, allocation of expenses to the guilty basket. And I mean, we, we stared pretty hard at the statutory language, but yeah, ultimately concluded that, you know, in section 904, yeah, the guilty basket was just one more basket and it there didn't seem to be anything 
sufficiently unique about its statutory drafting to justify a completely different treatment of the guilty basket from all other baskets for uh, expense apportionment purposes. So, you know, as much as people wanted us to, we, we simply concluded uh, that, you know, that, that was not consistent with the statutory language, regardless of, you know, suggestions to the contrary in, in the committee reports. So, yeah, that's where we landed fairly quickly. Uh, when news got out that we were you know, writing regulations requiring expense apportionment, it got quite a, a political reaction. Uh, we, you know, you know, the Secretary Mnuchin got a fair number of uh, personal calls from prominent Republican senators who carefully explained to him that that was not their intent, that they meant uh, um, the guilty to be a true minimum tax and that we should, um, you know, implement it accordingly. But, you know, after you know, a, a lot of uh, study and, and, and back and forth, we, we ended up requiring as a general matter that expenses be allocable to the guilty basket. Uh, but we did conclude that under our regulatory authority with respect to expense apportionment, we could write some you know, special rules that reflected the differences between the guilty basket and yeah, other foreign tax credit baskets. Yeah, RNE, I think, being one of the the yeah. um, obvious uh, choices in that one. Yeah, we dedicated the, some time on the podcast to, to, to that right. particular issue. So, yeah, the, what are the, the other things? One, I, I, mm -hmm. the, 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 the fundamental one was. Uh, you know, given that, you know, there's a, a 50% deduction against your guilty inclusions, um, effectively, uh, well, that tends to throw a lot more people into excess limitation position than in other baskets, because effectively the rate is half what uh, the normal statutory rate is. And therefore, we, we thought it appropriate to treat, yeah, the stock producing guilty inclusions as effectively 50% a tax exempt asset and therefore reduced the allocations against the guilty basket by half of what, what they would otherwise be. And so, yeah, that, that was the, the, the first and the biggest uh, accommodation we, we made to the you know, special nature of, of, of the guilty basket. And then as you were leading to uh, more recently, we, we issued you know, final regulations that provide that no R&D expenses are allocable to the guilty basket because, you know, if a CFC is utilizing technology developed by its U.S. parent, 367D provides a mechanism where that the U.S. parent should be fully compensated for the use of that technology through royalties or, or deemed royalties. And therefore, um, 
and those are general basket items and and therefore none of the residual profits net of those royalties or deemed royalties that are being taxed under guilty should be attracting the expense allocation and so um, we, we thought there was a solid theoretical basis for that rule as as well yeah, I will acknowledge that I already have taken for granted the 50% kind of exclusion, if you will, on the guilty, but, but you're right with the, the architecture of the section 250 yeah. deduction, yeah. that that did take a, an extra step, um, which well, is- And that was, you know, that was think, a fairly big deal, uh, given- Fair enough, yeah. Yeah, the, the effect on the revenue estimates of, of, of doing that. And, you know, it was, uh, there was a fair amount of internal debate since, uh, you know, we're, we at Treasury are yeah, responsible for revenue as well as, uh, you know, consistent implementation of, uh, of, of the legislation. Sure. So I think that's a perfect segue to, to the other area of, of, of relief um, related for, for companies, particularly that operate in high tax jurisdictions, which is the, the high tax exception. Um, and that has gotten a lot of publicity, both when it was originally introduced and then, you know, reproposed and finalized. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? And then it's recently obviously gotten some more publicity um, in the, the Senate finance proposal. But mm -hmm. tell us a little bit, maybe just spend a, a couple minutes on, on the high tax exception and kind of that process and to, to really narrow. And, we, and I will also acknowledge we've spent quite a bit of time on the cross-border tax talks. Mm -hmm. And I think that the consensus, at least amongst the practitioners that I've spoken with and, and a number of the taxpayers, is that is a very narrow exception that was drafted by Treasury, um, which we can understand just from the revenue point that you had made. But talk a little bit about that process. Yeah, it, uh, it seemed pretty counterintuitive that, you know, for instance, you know, guilty income, I mean, income from, you know, manufacturing uh, automobiles and, you know, relatively high tax jurisdictions could actually get worse treatment than, you know, subpart F income and, and passive income, um, you know, given that, you know, there are foreign tax credit carry forwards for, uh, you know, general basket income or, or um, even, you know, passive, well, a general basket income. And, it and guilty, you know, was, you know, at least by title meant to relate to low tax income. And, um, and, you know, just there, there was a dichotomy between the treatment of guilty and subpart F income. And, you know, we were aware that people, uh, therefore had an incentive in many cases to transmute you know, what uh, would otherwise be guilty income into, yeah, subpart F income uh, to get the better foreign tax credit limitation treatment. And all of which seemed to us to be, you know, counterintuitive and, and uh, not part of a, a well-integrated set of international tax rules. So we, we were, you know, trying to figure out, you know, whether we, you know, had some basis for allowing taxpayers to get essentially true territorial treatment 
for uh, income earned in high-tax subsidiaries. Very fascinating. Secretary of Treasury penned a letter to the Wall Street Journal calling for a global minimum tax, and, and you had mentioned this. What, what do you think are the realistic prospects? Because one of the other jobs besides issuing all of these regulations was, was your involvement with the OECD process. Um, and what do you think the prospects are for really like a, a true global minimum tax in, in the context of, of Pillar 2? And, and I appreciate that you know what the OECD comes to an agreement and what we ultimately see in paper could also look a lot different from what countries actually implement. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, at the OECD, you know, we've been negotiating for three years, uh, basically, and, uh, you know, the French and Germans decided they liked the concept of the guilty. They wanted, you know, to put it on the OECD agenda along with the uh, pillar one stuff about reallocating more to, to market jurisdictions. Uh, as they did so, they, you know, for the reasons we've discussed, wanted it to be a country by country regime. And we, we got, you know, fairly close to reaching, you know, agreement on Pillar 2 um, last year. Uh, you know, a lot of you know, strong technical work was done around it. Um, you know, I think, you know, most of the conceptual decisions have been agreed upon. The, uh, the, the remaining stumbling blocks were, one was, you know, the, the, the treatment of the, of the U.S. guilty, whether it would be a qualified income inclusion regime. And, and there was some, questioning, particularly from the UK, which doesn't much like Pillar 2 to begin with, uh, that they were questioning whether US multinationals would be systematically advantaged if they could you know, live with a guilty regime, which operated on a global blending basis, while the rest of the world would be subject to a country by country Pillar 2 regime. And uh, we debated that a lot. The uh, OECD Secretariat did a, a quantitative study where they concluded that sort of overall and in general, US-based multinationals would not be advantaged vis-a-vis -vis other multinationals if the US multinationals got to stay on the guilty. And we pretty well had that, uh, you know, on the road to being resolved. Um, notwithstanding all that, the, the other issue that prevented us from uh, agreeing on guilty last year was that a few countries, um, most prominently the UK, you know, took the position that they just were not willing to agree to Pillar 2, which they are less than enthusiastic about, unless there's a simultaneous agreement with respect to pillar one, which yeah, they, they have a much bigger appetite for. So yeah, we were getting, you know, reasonably close last year. Uh, I, I do think there is a good chance that it will be, you know, pushed over the finish line uh, in, in, in this year. And 
I'd also observe, you know, as you were indicating earlier, that yeah, pillar two could have a big effect on the world, even if a limited number of the larger holding company jurisdictions end up adopting it. It's not uh, a provision that you need yeah, 139 countries around the world to all agree to implement. Uh, as long as the major, you know, headquarters jurisdictions implement it, that will provide some incentive for uh, low-tax countries to to raise their corporate income tax rates, and and again, the operation of the under-tax payment rule would both incentivize you know, countries to get on board with it uh, and get collect the tax themselves, uh, and um, could 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 help. Uh, make it effective even if you know not all companies are subject to uh, pillar two yeah i think one of the big challenges for that is ireland right and, and they've, they've already made some some public comments in response to um the u.s administration's mm -hmm. uh proposal to the or report to the oecd and so janet yellen's comments and so you know that seems to be a big challenge with 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 ireland at a 12 and a half percent rate and then at being a part of the eu and then for you know my understanding is with respect to the eu um like for the anti-tax avoidance directives for the first mm -hmm. two anti-tax avoidance directives anything that implicates tax generally speaking needs to require unanimous consent and so, you know, it, it would appear, it would seem that if Ireland was going to agree to minimum tax, it's going to be a 12 and a half, which then you, you kind of question, does that still really accomplish the policy goals that, that the U.S. Um, really is trying to set forth with this minimum tax? Mm -hmm. Well, as you suggest, uh, the Biden administration has a strong incentive to try to negotiate the minimum rate uh, for pillar two above 12 and a half percent. You know, for the reasons you discuss, I do think it will be difficult to get um, uniform agreement on uh, a rate above twelve and a half percent. But I do think it may be end up being a minimum standard, and other countries, uh, including the U.S., are free to have higher minimum rates. Well, Chip, I think that is a perfect place to end things. And as those developments occur, of course, you'll hear more about it here on the Cross-Border Tax Talks. Um, Chip, I just want to thank you very much. It was an honor to have you on the podcast. I, I still have so many more questions. I'm sure our listeners do. Hopefully, we can uh, get you back to explore some of the other issues. But this was something that I've, I've been um, hoping for several years to be able to ask. And you've shed a lot of light onto the process. Um, that that went that that happened at, at Treasury, um, and uh, really really appreciate you joining the Cross Border Tax Talks today. Good. Well, thank you, Doug. It's great fun. Let's do it again. All right. So thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross Border Tax Talks. Thank you again to Chip Harder, an international tax policy advisor for PwC. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's international tax services leader. Stay tuned in two weeks for another exciting edition of Cross-Border Tax Talks.
This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.